Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Or there's a reasonable theory of the case and an unreasonable theory or an interpretation of the evidence, you gotta go with the reasonable one. And that's the jury instruction I pound on. Their story, their theory of the evidence in the case is unreasonable. Please rise, court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, as always, uh, this is Steve Lowry and Yvonne Godfrey. And um, and Yvonne, I, I knew I promised never to say as always, but I, I just said it there and uh, I haven't done it in a while. So I think it, it'll be OK. You haven't done it in a while. People do need to be reminded that the that the co-host lineup doesn't really change. Yes. So yeah. I think it's fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, uh, I have uh, I have some really big news for the podcast, and I uh, haven't told you about it. I wanted to wait and say it uh, for the first time on this show. Uh, we have now officially passed 100,000 downloads. That is exciting. I didn't so, know that. So there's actually, I mean, now obviously uh, people can download it more than once. And um, and I, I know that uh, my parents, I forced them to download it at least 10,000 times so they can stop. Uh, but uh, <laughs> as they're sitting in their retirement home and forcing all their friends to download it as much as possible. Um, they're, the, they're the happiest about the news because they're like, right. finally, we can stop downloading episodes. That's right. That's right. And our fingers can stop happening but uh, no it, no it, but we're very proud of that very proud that uh that, that we've been able to do so many shows and have so many uh great guests and uh and to and to break a hundred thousand so uh now on to a million very oh my god very <laughs> exciting and we're always looking for um ways to get better and, and appeal to more listeners so um everybody we've gotten really good suggestions from folks both for guests and for show format stuff so we are always open to um, hearing your ideas. So thanks yeah, everyone. Absolutely. We couldn't have done it without you. We couldn't have done it without you, Steve's mom and dad. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, let me go ahead and introduce our guest. We've got a fantastic uh, guest, Nima Ramani. Uh, uh, Nima is a, a trial lawyer and is the president and co-founder of West Coast Trial Lawyers in Los Angeles, California. Um, and Nima, we are just uh, so uh, happy to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Steve and Yvonne. Um, this show is going to be a little bit different. Uh, we have talked about some criminal cases before. I think we've talked about two before. Um, um, now I'm totally uh, forgetting the the doctor's name, but the one that was the uh, the basis of the podcast where the doctor was um, um, Doctor Death, um, where he uh, yeah, would you yeah, Dunch? That's right. Um, he. Uh, we, we did that one. And then we also did the one with uh, with Michael Watts, uh, which was uh, which was interesting. So uh, but we are going to talk about a criminal prosecution today. And um, and uh, Nima, before he was the president and co-founder of West Coast Trial Lawyers, because now he uh, represents uh, average, ordinary, everyday people who've been severely injured um, and has done a great job on that. Uh, before that, he was an assistant U.S. attorney uh, for the Southern District of California. And uh, and this is one of uh, one of his cases, so it'll be uh, it'll it'll be exciting. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this because Steve, we talk about this a lot. Um, I don't know if we've talked about it on the show before, but I feel like a lot of the times when you tell people that you're a lawyer, just like an average person that you meet, or they find out that you're a lawyer, a lot of times they have questions about 
criminal law. And I'm like, well, I actually yeah. <laughs> don't know almost anything about criminal law. The bar was kind of pass fail. And that's the last time I heard <laughs> right. criminal law. <laughs> kind of pass fail. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but, so I'm really excited to talk to, to somebody like Nima, who's got the perspective of, of, you know, how those areas of, you know, what they have in common, those different areas of the law and, and, you know, what you can use in both and how, how they differ. So this should be exciting for us. Yeah. Well, uh, Nima, let me give everybody a little bit about your background. Uh, so as I said already, Nima is the president and co-founder of West Coast Trial Lawyers, and you can look him up at westcoasttriallawyers.com, uh, a fantastic law firm. Uh, uh, it looks like you've got about 24 lawyers uh, working for you out in, in Los Angeles and have done uh, just great work, tried a number of cases, gotten great results, uh, both through settlement and through trial, a number of seven and eight figure results. Um, but Nima um, was uh, a 19-year-old graduate from the University of California, Los Angeles. So UCLA um, grad, and I'm sure, uh, Nima, have you recovered yet from uh, the, the, I mean, the great run by UCLA through uh, the tournament, but then that uh, that uh, last second uh, Gonzaga three-pointer? That was, uh, that, See, was hard- that was brutal, man. I was actually out of the country. I'm watching and I'm streaming it. I see it bank in in overtime and um yeah just that shot uh, is forever etched in my memory it made me feel better that gonzaga got blown out <laughs> right. on monday by baylor so oh, man. hopefully it didn't cost ucla a record-breaking 12th national championship i want to give a shout out to my bruins but yeah. still hurt nonetheless and even though it's been six days um the pain yeah. is still there. <laughs> I, you know, I actually think that, uh, that that game that they played against UCLA just drained Gonzaga so much that they just couldn't uh, couldn't match up with uh, with the with Baylor. So a lot of people said we beat them up pretty bad, and it's just you know these at the end of the day these are college kids, so yeah, you know yeah. letdowns whether it's college football or basketball after a big victory like this, it's just not uncommon. So yeah, um, I yeah. agree with you. Well, uh, after Nima uh, was uh, a 19-year-old grad from UCLA, he then went on to Harvard Law School, which I've heard is a pretty good law school, uh, and graduated Harvard Law at the age of 22. Uh, I'm not even, I'm trying to remember, I think I'd started law school by then, but I definitely uh, wasn't anywhere close to graduation. So uh, that's, uh, that's just amazing. I mean, not only uh, to graduate from Harvard Law School, which is one of the best in the country, if not the best, uh, but to do it at such a young age. Um, and so, um, so then after that, Nima went to work for, uh, for a defense, a very large defense law firm named Melvinie Myers, uh, that's one of the largest defense firms in, uh, Los Angeles. Uh, and, uh, and then I take it, Nima got tired of, of helping out, uh, corporations when they had, uh, you know, hurt somebody or something, but, uh, but then decided to, uh, to, to, um, uh, become an assistant U S attorney, uh, for a while. And, um, uh, tried a number of cases as a, uh, as a U.S. attorney. Uh, and, um, I saw that one of the people that you helped bring down was a, um, a fugitive murderer and drug kingpin, uh, who had terrorized Southern California and was on America's most wanted. And that's one of the cases that you, uh, that you prosecuted successfully. Um, after that, or during that, he became the director of enforcement of the city of Los Angeles uh, Ethics Commission, which uh, basically oversees or um, 
ethics complaints of, of the city of Los Angeles, including the mayor and uh, and other high ranking city officials. Uh, and then uh, after uh, his time as a prosecutor uh, started uh, West Coast trial lawyers and, as we've said, has just um, had a uh, a it's, I mean, the, the firm has really, really grown quickly and is, uh, and is just one of the top. I think I saw on your website is uh, the number one personal injury firm in Los Angeles. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate <laughs> it. Yeah, I've done it all. It's been 20 years. So like you said, started with civil defense, criminal defense, white collar, then became a prosecutor down to civil plaintiff's work. So it's kind of come full circle for me. Yeah. I had a question. Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Can I ask? Is I have a question for you, Nima. Um, going through undergrad and law school at such a young age and so um, quickly was that just you know your like brain kind of propelling you forward just just through you know through grade school and every and high school and everything else and so it was just the pace you were moving at or was this something where you knew what you wanted to do and you were just excited to to get started doing it or none of the above. That's exactly what it was. So I was a super nerd and still a super nerd and had immigrant parents that were pushing me forward. Uh, and I can tell you in retrospect, I don't recommend it for my own kids, you know, part of life and part of school is just enjoying that journey. So it's a good little tidbit clients like it. Um, but you know, you're, you're in no rush. You're going to be working for the rest of your life. So right. you know, what, the way it worked out for me was I skipped a couple of grades in elementary school. And then fortunately my parents stopped skipping me. So I was 16 when I graduated high school and then took every AP test in the world. So I was able to get through college in three years and straight to law school. And here I am. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it's impressive, but I, I, I definitely agree with, uh, um, you know, you, you got to stop and enjoy, uh, you know, being in college and being, uh, you know, out on your own and, and, you know, that those are all, uh, great experiences in and of themselves. And so, um, so yeah, maybe rushing isn't always the best thing, but it is, it is uh, certainly impressive. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah. um, well, let's talk about this case. So, as I said, this is a uh, this is a criminal case, is a, a prosecution uh, where Nima was the lead prosecutor on the case, and um, I feel Yvonne like this was sort of out of uh, Breaking Bad because um, it's uh, it involves drug smuggling, you know, of methamphetamine, and um, you know, and you you know, I was just imagining you know uh, watching the characters from Breaking Bad, uh, uh, you know, working on how they were going to get the methamphetamine into the U S and, and this is certainly one, uh, a creative way, although it didn't work for this, uh, this woman. Um, the name of the case is the United States of America versus Elena Trejo. And, um, it happened back in March of 2011. Um, Elena was a, uh, lived, uh, in, uh, Tijuana, um, and uh, basically would come into the U.S. a lot. She owned a construction company uh, there and, um, and had a number of workers. Uh, and basically, she was crossing um, the San Isidro, Isidro um, uh, port of entry, which is the port of entry right there at Tijuana, uh, was driving a 2003 Chevy Trailblazer. And um, when she... Uh, was coming across, they, they, uh, I guess at this port of entry, which is the, um, as Nima pointed out off air, it's the, uh, um, the largest point of entry, uh, into the United States has the most people coming in. It can, uh, but basically as people are waiting, they will have, uh, uh, 
drug uh, sniffing dogs uh, walking around there. This one's name was Nina, I saw. Um, and uh, the, and it alerted onto uh, Miss Trejo's uh, uh, Chevy Trailblazer. And um, so they they asked her some questions. There was some, some issue about the fact that she might have been hiding her face behind a newspaper, pretending not to pay attention, seemed very nervous when she was answering the questions. Uh, and they, they pulled her over to the side and they did a an inspection of her vehicle. And in there they found that she had well, or someone had put in a, a diesel radiator, uh, a much larger radiator and filled it up with nine pounds of methamphetamine. Uh, and, um, I think Nima, if I saw right, you said that they, they took up 80%, 86% of the radiator. And, um, according to your expert, uh, she would only have made it about five miles, uh, before the, the vehicle would have overheated and, and, uh, essentially died. And so I guess that was enough to get her over the border, but it wasn't going to make it much further than that. Um, so she, so she got, um, uh, arrested um, for uh, smuggling in the uh, the nine pounds of methamphetamine. And uh, it, I think the street value of it was about $133,000. And, uh, and so Nima prosecuted this case. And, um, you know, one, one of the things that sort of struck me, uh, and I guess I should say, and we'll talk about this more as we go on, the, the defense, the main defense in this was what uh, the, the uh, defense lawyer was calling the blind mule uh, or unknowing courier uh, theory, which is essentially that that she had allowed a number of people uh, who worked for her in her construction company to borrow her uh, her uh, trailblazer, and um, the some one somebody the um, I think his name was Alfredo Villa. Um, they had borrowed it the day before, and so at least what the defense was claiming was that uh, he had. Uh, or he had somebody put in this radiator containing the methamphetamine and she didn't know it was there. And so she was an, an unknowing and unwitting courier, which they called the blind mule. The jury did not buy that defense. Uh, and she was convicted of uh, transporting more than 500 grams of methamphetamine into the U S and, um, and, um, and so uh, Nemo was, uh, was successful. Um, I was uh, struck uh, in this case, uh, Yvonne, about how quickly it was tried and how efficiently it was. A, it was basically a two-day trial, and a, a, a two-day trial that included picking a jury. I, I, I counted at least three experts that tr that testified. Um, you know, and so doing opening, closing, it just was a very quick, efficient um, uh, trial uh, to get done. So. Um, so what did I leave out there, Nima? Steve, you hit everything. You know, it was um, an interesting case of someone who was connected to the cartels. And normally in these types of cases, you know, the minimum mandatory for this amount of methamphetamine is 10 years. The only way you can get out from under that mandatory minimum is to plead safety valve, cooperate. Usually you can probably get a sentence about three to four years. Um, she wouldn't. And this was a defense attorney that I knew, or Victor Pippins, he's on the bench now. Ultimately, because of some of the folks that she was pointing to, he was a federal public defender. He was conflicted off. A panel attorney, Mark Geller, ended up taking over the case. But, you know, I was surprised that she didn't take the deal. It's a pretty generous deal under the circumstances. She ended up getting 
a lot more than that. She got 151 months, so probably served an additional approximately 10 years. Right. But, you know, female defendants sometimes are hard to convict. Juries tend to be more sympathetic. Um, she had a green card and obviously would have lost that. That may have been a concern. Um, but, you know, of the thousands of cases that are prosecuted, she was one of the few that ultimately didn't take the deal. Case went to trial and she was convicted. You know, talking about methamphetamine, I mean, it's you know, right now everyone's, it's all about fentanyl, right? But, right. you know, 10 years ago, methamphetamine was the drug. Uh, you know, it's, it's highly addictive. Um, dosages are anywhere from a tenth to three tenths of a gram. And, you know, DA did a good job, at least in Southern California, where I'm from. Of getting rid of these meth labs. I mean, we all see Breaking Bad there on the desert, mm-hmm. but now you can't even buy Sudafed without showing your ID. So, right. you know, a lot of these labs, you know, they just move south of the border. They're with five, 10 miles of the way. It's really super labs. And this is how kind of the Mexican cartels, they really got control over the drug trade because unlike, you know, cocaine that requires processing in Colombia or, you know, cocoa leaves or heroin often comes from Afghanistan and poppy seed. I mean, this is something that's purely synthetic, purely can be produced in Mexico and highly addictive, cheap, um, small doses. So this is really kind of when the methamphetamine trade was booming. And, you know, this was someone that was relatively high up um, in the organization, certainly no mule. And, you know, she, she just got caught. And she didn't take the deal. And so we pushed the case to trial. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's Nima, one thing. Oh, go, go ahead, Yvonne. Well, I was just going to ask how, um, how from when you're trying to see if there's something you can work out as far as a plea deal goes to when you ultimately end up having to try the case, how much like how much lead time do you end up getting knowing that you're at least likely going to have to to try the case to a jury? So obviously on the federal side, you know, criminal side, they have a right to a speedy trial. So sometimes defense attorneys, they try to jam you up and say, listen, I'm not going to waive any time. Um, you, you know, you got to indict my client, which we did. But, you know, if obviously if you're going to reach a resolution and you kind of see this in the capital rights cases, right? Now, usually federal criminal defense, they'll waive their right to an indictment. They'll um, plead, even if it's not guilty to an information, that's just essentially a complaint. Um but, you know, you have a case like this where, you know, the defendant wouldn't agree to anything. You know, she wouldn't waive time. She wouldn't um, waive her right to indictment, uh, allow us to proceed by information. So got to go to the grand jury. We get that indictment, you know, and they think by pushing for the first available trial date that somehow that's going to put us as the prosecution of the United States behind the eight ball. It just really didn't happen. You know, the other reason is obviously we've all tried cases in federal court. You know, it's just night and day when it comes to jury selection. You know, you're going to get those first 12 jurors. You know, that voir dire is going to be like a half an hour or an hour, especially this, you know, this was one of those old school federal judges didn't have a state background. So she just went through um, jury selection like fast, you know, yeah. very little attorney voir dire. You're going to get that first 12 jurors maybe you get to juror 15 or 16 but that's it it's not like the Derek Chauvin George Floyd trial right now where you have four weeks of jury selection individual why did it didn't happen right Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I noticed how quickly she went through uh, uh, jury selection. And um, and I was wondering, did you submit questions? It didn't look like she allowed you, uh, the lawyers, to do any questioning of their own. No, no submitted questions. You know, she just basically picked the jury for us. Obviously, we have our peremptories and our strikes. But, um, yeah, you're really kind of going blind in, in a case like this, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and this was tried. I, I should have said that in the beginning. Uh, it was tried in the Southern District of California. And I assume would this have been tried down in San Diego? Yeah, San Diego, the federal courthouse down there before Judge Huff. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes. And only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we're on a first name basis. (laughs) You know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you. You can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. Well, and you, you mentioned that uh, that Miss um, Trejo was a, a member of the cartel or higher up member. That I didn't see any of that come into evidence in the trial. Had that been uh, ruled out or was there? Yeah, yeah okay. some of that in terms of you kind of saw the evidence of structure. We're going back and forth. And I want to talk about the structure of these organizations and how it works. Uh, 
you know, it wasn't really particularly relevant um, to the importation of the methamphetamine, but I mean, she was certainly connected. Uh, and we knew that just because of the folks that she was talking to, um, you know, so, and again, they, they, they don't trust hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of meth to someone right. who, who, who isn't uh, connected because that's a lot of product. And, you know, if they disappear, then you know, they've lost that money. No, I, I actually thought that, you know, in your closing argument, I thought that was a great point, which was, uh, you know, like what makes more sense here? Are they that they're just going to, you know, put this in somebody who doesn't know they're taking it and then they're going to have to figure out how to get the car out of her you know, possession, leave her stranded when she's in the U.S. or that they could just pay her, you know, a thousand or two thousand dollars, just do a straightforward, um, uh, you know, uh, exchange uh for her to drive it in you know and uh and it it, it really did it just you know especially when you're talking about $130,000 worth of uh of methamphetamine so it's not an insignificant amount amount yeah no question um you know in most of these criminal cases you kind of get one or two defenses right it wasn't me or i didn't know and this was you know the i didn't know defense so a lot of these arguments were just focusing kind of on circumstantial evidence where I, mean, I can't, you know, get in someone's brain and you're rarely going to have that admission that I know I'm transporting, you know, a schedule two drug across the United right. States. So, yeah. um, you know, luckily, you know, we, we kind of tripped her up. She ended up testifying, um, which is rare in a criminal case, right. obviously, um, went after her pretty aggressively on cross-examination and, um, were able to catch her in some inconsistencies and that type of thing. I don't think she was a particularly good witness, but, you know, and I don't know what was going on on the defense side. Sometimes as a defense lawyer, you don't have control over your client. And, you know, maybe that's why the case ended up going to trial right. and she ended up getting such a significant sentence because not only did she testify and the jury clearly didn't believe her, but at sentencing, the judge gave her an obstruction enhancement because, um, of her perjured testimony. Yeah. And I, I couldn't tell you, I saw right at the beginning that there was an argument about whether or not her criminal history was going to come into evidence. And it didn't look like it did. Did, did her criminal history, uh, her Mexican criminal history end up coming into evidence? It didn't, you know, and it's one of those things, again, the defense usually gets leeway in these types of cases. So the defense attorney was arguing that here's a woman with no criminal history. Right. Well, yeah, she has no criminal history in the U.S., but guess what? She's got significant criminal history down in Mexico. So it's basically misleading the jury. Uh, ultimately, he was able to argue there's no criminal history in the United States. That's what um, that's what the judge allowed him to say. She was certainly one of those judges. And again, these federal district judges, you know, they deal with so many cases. You know, when it comes to criminal cases, they just kind of like to keep things moving because it's still in their civil docket. And she just wasn't really having it in terms of any kind of collateral issue for me to bring in witnesses to testify to a criminal history in Mexico and those types of things. She really kind of kept it really narrowly tailored to the issues in this case. So yeah, yeah. none of that unfortunately came in, but I would have loved to bring it in because I would have dirtied her up a bit, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> wasn't able to do so. Well, it sounds like you did pretty good anyways. <laughs> um, so speaking of that, Nima, I was wondering, cause I was surprised I think I just had the expectation that she probably wouldn't testify. And I, I was surprised to see that she did. And I was wondering when, when you're approaching, whether it's her specifically cross-examining her or just when you get the opportunity to do it with a criminal defendant in general, 
you know, we talk to people on the civil side and they talk about, you know, kind of how far you can go in cross-examination and, and you can only go as far as the jury will kind of give you permission to go in terms of staying likable versus accidentally pissing the jury off or having them have sympathy for the witness. And so I'm wondering from the from the prosecution standpoint, if it's similar, are you sort of engaging in a similar sort of feeling it out as you go with how far you can go with with a criminal defendant or or is there more of a general approach of just what you've got to establish and that's it? So it's so rare for these criminal defendants to testify when you actually get that opportunity to prosecute. You're like, Oh my God. So like yeah. you just really, it's like one out of 10, two out of 10, they rarely testify. So like it's a prosecutor's dream or, mm-hmm. you know, because again, it's usually the defense attorneys that get the cross-examination fund right. and we're just doing direct and we can't lead. And we just got to kind of go through, you know, this really sort of formal process. They get beat up a little on cross-examination. We got to bring them back to redirect them. So um, when you can be on offense, it's just absolutely amazing. So usually you're not going to hold, like obviously you don't want to lose the case if it's like a, you know, if it's a minor or someone particularly sympathetic, but I already painted her as really this sort of, you know, drug trafficker. So I right. had really no concerns about pissing the jury off. I wanted to be as aggressive as possible. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, we painted her and she told this really kind of just the story that really made absolutely no sense that she had these workers working for her. She identified some of them. We actually, part of the interesting part of the case, I had my agents go pick those people up, parole them into the United States, have them come testify. So, you know, on one hand, the cross-examination was aggressive, but on the other, I just basically let her, gave her the rope to kind of mm-hmm. hang herself by telling yeah. this absolutely ridiculous story. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and, and her story, I guess we should, you know, I, I mentioned it, which was is that, you know, she's this blind mule, but uh, the, she, she had this, she had bought this, uh, this trailblazer, I think nine days or 10 days beforehand, because she was replacing a van for her construction company. And she had three employees, and that she basically left the keys for the trailblazer and one other vehicle, I think it was a Ford F-150, um, in, in, in the office, in a, a box in the office so that the employees could basically take the, the company vehicles anytime they wanted to. Um, and, and that, uh, as I said, that there was this, this person who worked for her named, uh, Alfredo Villa, uh, who, uh, had taken it the day before, um, and had, had it gone for several hours because there was some testimony about how long it would take to put this, this larger, different radiator with this secret compartment in it. Um, I think it would, the testimony was that it would take about three to four hours. Um, and he had had it for that, that period of time. What I thought was really, uh, two, two things on your cross-examination, which would, you know, obviously were very effective was she didn't know very much about Mr. Via who had been this employee who had worked for her for so long. Um, but that once she got arrested, she tried to call him like six different times or had uh, had multiple conversations with him and never mentioned anything about the drugs or anything about the fact that, you know, she had just, you know, that she had just been caught with drugs in her car, uh, it, which you would think if, if she didn't know anything about, she would have, you know, sort of been like, what the hell? <laughs> my my radiator is full of methamphetamine. What'd you do to me? And she didn't mention any of that, which I thought, you know, of course that, uh, you know, and then that played into your uh, in, into your theme of, you know, you got to use your common sense when you're looking at this case. 
Yeah, so she blamed Via, right? And then Via was probably the source of the drugs. You know, I don't think it was an employee, like she said, but you know, these jail calls are all recorded, and she makes a number of calls to Via, and never once does she say, "Dude, you took my truck, man! Like, what'd hmm. you put in my truck?" You know, like I can't believe it. Like, there's no outrage. There's no even discussion of any of this. Guess what? Via knew exactly what was going on, and. You know, there's all sorts of things. I mean, really, the details matter in these cases. You know, she's driving this car. She's got one key. It was one key, you know, and she doesn't have any other keys. There's no CD. There's nothing in this car except for drugs, right? So it's clearly the drug car. It's been it's been modified to um, basically only go just a short distance and there's nothing in there that's consistent with a work vehicle or a personal mm-hmm. vehicle. I'm not sure it just doesn't make sense. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, back, back to this issue of her testifying. Um, were you surprised that, um, that she testified and, you know, and we, we've never really discussed it on, uh, you know, on this show about, you know, why defendants in criminal cases generally don't testify. You want to talk about that for a second about, first of all, about generally why they don't testify. And then, you know, uh, how much of a surprise was it in this case that she chose to testify? Yeah, they generally don't testify because then the entire case turns on their testimony. They have to be absolutely perfect. Um, And the jury is going to judge every sentence, every word, and all the other evidence goes out the window. So it's a really risky play if you're a criminal defense attorney because, one, your reasonable doubt may go out the window. Two, it really raises the stakes because if you're going to testify as a criminal defendant, you get on that stand and you perjure yourself, you know, once the jury returns a guilty verdict, guess what? Most judges are going to impose that trial tax, that obstruction tax, because now you wasted everyone's time. You come here and lied to this jury, lied to the court, and you're going to get a significantly higher sentence than you otherwise would. Judge Huff probably would have given her, um, you know, maybe the 10 years, just the the minimum, um, the minimum mandatory, but not after she got up there. So if you have any type of case as a criminal defense attorney, you're really not going to put your defendant on the stand, you know, especially someone that's not super sophisticated, hasn't really been around the courtroom, um, hasn't testified before because you're rolling the dice that it's not only going to piss off the jury and you're going to guilty verdict, but it's going to piss off the judge and you're going to get hammered at sentencing. So that's why it's pretty uncommon for something like this to happen. Yeah, that's a good point. I, you know, I thought about it in reading her testimony and and reading your cross of her. Um, I thought about how risky it was for her because she had to reconcile certain things that she had told the, um, you know, the officers when she was initially apprehended versus what kind of her story was at trial. And, you know, some employee names had she had referenced different employees and things like that. So she had all these inconsistencies that she had to explain. She had to explain why she was nervous about being late, but not nervous, you know, as far as like her hands shaking and all this stuff when she was um, when they were investigating her car. And so I thought about all that risk imagining what the jury is thinking about it, but I didn't really think about what the, the point that you made and what happened in this case was that in addition to all of that, the sentencing guidelines permit, um, you know, for you to get sentencing, you know, additional time on your sentence tacked on and that the, the judge is sitting there watching all of it. I didn't really think about that risk. It seemed risky enough as it is, but that's certainly another reason not to do it. 
Yeah. yeah, you know, the sort of safe play on in these cases is, you know, you don't put your client on the stand, defendant doesn't testify, you know, you show up at sentencing, you can still try to accept responsibility, you can even try to, you know, cooperate after the fact and try to get under that 10 year. Um, but once you go down this path of testifying, perjuring yourself, I mean, it's really too late at that point, I mean, mm-hmm. you're done, because then now yeah. you would you know, try to pull it back and obviously perjury. And, and these are federal judges, man. They're going to, yeah. It, the, these types of games aren't going to play. They're used to, you know, dishing out pretty significant sentences. So it's a really, really risky play. Whereas kind of the safe play would be like, look, you know, I wanted to hold the United States to its burden. They have to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. They did. You know, now that they've done so, you know, I want to kind of accept responsibility. Again, it's a late acceptance of responsibility. But you can at least make that argument. I want to cooperate at this point. And you really can't do it. Once you've gone down this path, you're going for an acquittal. And then once you're convicted, it's basically appeal or nothing. Yeah. So how does it work with uh, in the you know, I I actually uh, we we were talking earlier. I actually have handled a few uh, federal defense cases uh, because in the Southern District of Georgia, at least uh, uh, they don't really do it anymore. But they would appoint, um, you know, lawyers who are part of the Southern District of Georgia to you know take on criminal defendants. So I've done a couple of bank robberies, a couple of possession cases and, and things like that. And they're always. Uh, interesting. And you always have to pick up the phone and call your friends who are on the criminal defense side and say, what the hell do I do now? You know, now that, now that I've got this case. Um, so, um, but, uh, you know, you know, I, I, uh, one thing I thought was, uh, interesting in this case, uh, and I was, I was wondering why, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. The expert that the defense called in the case, which was a former DEA agent, um, he, it didn't seem like he really added anything to the defense. And then of course it opened up uh, just a really, uh, I mean, very quick, but just a really effective cross-examination, which was that the one time that he had testified before on behalf of the defense, he had testified that blind mules, you know, as they were claiming here was extremely rare and that usually cartels just liked paying people for their service. And he still believed that was true. Um, and he never really said that she was a blind mule. She, he just said he knows what blind mules are. And he said he really couldn't make a determination one way or the other. So I didn't really understand why the defense called him in this case. Did you get any sense of that? I didn't think he was particularly effective. I agree, Steve. You know, he basically said, look, it's possible that there's blind mules, but you know, in my experience, it's really rare. I mean, we had transcripts of this guy, obviously, you know, when you're part of the department of justice, you usually send a quick email. You can send the department wide. Hey, is this guy ever testified? Give me the transcript. And he knew that whatever he was going to say, that's going to be locked in to our expert witness database at the department for life. So he had to really kind of walk a fine line, not over, mm-hmm. you know, overstate his case because he was going to kind of lose credibility. Uh, it's something that probably, could have just happened on argument and they did really open the store to this blind meal argument ultimately. And the judge didn't let me, if I could have talked about how the cartels actually are set up and how the organization is run. I mean, it would have been devastating. A lot of judges. And again, this judge wanted to move really quickly and she was having none of it, but a lot of judges, once you open the store and you know, they're going to let you bring in DEA experts, DHS experts are going to say, no, this is how the cartel works. You know, 
people get paid. There's meals, there's this, there's that. There's the people that run the organization. They go nowhere near the drugs. I mean, it's actually really fascinating. I mean, they run like a business and, you know, these folks are just one employee of the business, but it, it was again, a risky play wasn't effective. Again, ultimately this judge didn't allow me to talk about the cartel in general, but I would have absolutely loved to for this jury. Um, she just uh, was pretty adamant against it. The, um, is it your belief? I mean, so I'm, I'm getting it from our conversation now that, that is it your belief that the people who she was calling employees weren't really employees that they were really cartel members. Okay. Cartel members. No question. Okay. And, and then these guys who, cause so when she first got pulled over and they find the, uh, the methamphetamine, she names three employees, um, you know, who, uh, she who had driven her truck and they were different than the people who she said on the stand, uh, who were the three employees. Um, and then you, and then, as you said, like two of them were these brothers who had painted her house and you, uh, were able to get them to come and testify, you know, that she had told them that she was a a drug mule and, and made money, uh, you know, uh, by, uh, moving, uh, drugs across the border and that, uh, she wanted them to do the same thing. And, and, um, so I, I guess what I'm wondering is, were those guys actually the employee or were those guys just, she was trying to cover up who her cartel connections yeah, were? Yeah. Those guys were, the, I think the real employees, cause she had okay. money, um, she had a nice house in Mexico and she bragged to her employees about what she did. So, um, we we're able to again, get those two, get them across the border. Um, again, this is part of the luxury of working for the federal government. You got resources like this where you can parole them into the United States, even though they have no status here for the purposes of testifying. You get CBP and you get DHS to you know take care of that for you. So once she opened the door to this absolutely ridiculous story about, you know, this employee via that took her car, the judge allowed us to, you know, put these guys on as rebuttal witnesses. You know, we found them, we got them, we put them on the stand. And again, really damaging for her because these are folks that clearly have no interest in being in the United States, much less testifying in a federal (laughs) drug case. You know, they're terrified. um, But, you know, they came in and, you know, they told the truth and they told something that was absolutely inconsistent with the ridiculous story she was telling the jurors. So, Yvonne, the Internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world. But if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the Internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. 
Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. You mentioned that you've got these like resources um, as, as part of working for the federal government in terms of, you know, securing these witnesses or maybe info on an expert witness. When it comes to actually, you know, the process of trying a case, are you, um, how much support do you have there? Are you kind of like a one man show once things get up and running or do you have like a decent amount of support for trial prep or when you're actually in trial? So one of the big differences between federal and state work, and I've tried a lot of cases on both sides is uh, usually stateside here in California, at least law enforcement, they arrest someone, um, they prepare their reports, you know, they send the file to the DA's office or the city attorney's office, and they're done with it. I mean, DA's have their own investigators, but you're not getting a lot of law enforcement support. On the federal side, and I say this respectfully, the quality of your agents are significantly better. Half of them are lawyers or CPA. They have graduate degrees. When you're dealing with FBI particularly, DEA is really good. Um, so you have these amazing agents and they're helping you all throughout trial. So you have that luxury of, Hey, you know, you can get your own subpoena, but then you can have your DEA agents and admin subpoenas. I mean, they really know what they're doing. So the support that you have from, at least from a law enforcement perspective on the federal side Mm -hmm. is significantly better than you would stateside. Um, stateside, you're dealing with volume. Uh, you know, the vast majority, I mean, I was a federal prosecutor. I get to choose what cases we try and which cases mm-hmm. we don't try. And importantly, we need to choose what cases even come in federally and which cases go state. So the vast majority right. of drug cases that come in, I'm like, listen, I don't want it. So for instance, like marijuana, unless it was a ton, literally one ton of marijuana. <laughs> right, right. I'm like, I'm like, I don't even want to hear. I don't want to, don't, don't bother me with any like I don't want to bring a marijuana case federal you know take all that state no one cares about marijuana you know but like if it was meth if it was heroin you know fentanyl was just starting but oxy was big back then I mean mm-hmm. those are the types of things that like I cared about so we got to choose the biggest the most important the best cases um and we put the federal resources behind those cases and everything else and guess what that sounds like a state problem to me. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so one thing I wanted to ask you, um, and I, I got off track, but, um, so the jury here finds or gives a guilty verdict. And then what, what happens in the sentencing process? Is it, uh, is that when you do the, the, um, the sort of report that the, I think it's the probation office does 
and they and they give their recommendation, and then the judge, you know, can will basically follow the sentencing guidelines, but but might you know do a departure one way or the other based on the recommendations. Is it is that how it works? Yeah. So after a conviction could be you know guilty plea or jury conviction, um, probation, which is an arm of the district court, they prepare their reports called the pre-sentence report. Um, the parties, the government and the defense will also prepare their sentencing memoranda. Uh, oftentimes the judge will go with probation's recommendation. So they are an important sort of player. They'll interview the defendant. In this case, I think she refused to be interviewed, if I recall correctly, because she was um, preserving her right to appeal, went up to the Ninth Circuit. So you know, it, it is important, no question, uh, what recommendation they make. I, I've done federal criminal defense work like you, and if I get a good probation officer who writes a good report, uh, oftentimes the judge are going to go with that recommendation because unlike the government or the defense that really sort of you know, the kind of polar extremes when it comes to sentencing recommendations, you have someone that really has no interest in the case, independent, uh, and really is affiliated with the court. So uh, their recommendation does have a lot of sway. And it, okay, so that that happens weeks or months after the trial. Um, yes, why everybody's working on their their sentencing, the the, the reports and on each side. Yes, that's correct. Okay, Nima, how do you approach it? Have you found, or and maybe it isn't different. Um, because it's funny because a lot of the stuff that you were saying in your opening and closing about um, the burden of proof or the defense arguments that you were having to address reminded me a lot of what happens in the civil context in terms of, you know, the the defense always being to put, you know, mention over and over again how it's your burden of proof and to, to poke holes in what you didn't show the jury or whatever. Um, but from your experience, both doing criminal and civil work, how do you how do you or do you approach the kind of the burden of proof, the beyond of a reasonable doubt burden of proof differently than the preponderance burden that you get in civil cases. Yeah, I mean, I know they're different, but I'm wondering yeah. mentally if you approach them <laughs> sure. differently. No, we do because a lot of these jurors have civil trial experience, right? So they're used to that preponderance more likely than not, you know, 50.1%, just a feather can tip those mm -hmm. scales. Right. And you have these defense attorneys, not only do they talk, they usually will talk about preponderance, but they'll even talk about, they'll start, look, here's, here are the different standards in our system of justice, right? Civil and criminal. They'll talk about probable cause and they'll say, you know, probable cause is less than preponderance, but that's enough for law enforcement to search your body cavities. So, you know, think how, you know, that's probable. They can search your house. They can, you know, exit. So they talk about probable cause. They're like, well, there's another civil standard, you know, which is preponderance. They talk about that. Then they go to clear and convincing. But like clear and convincing, the state can come take your children away from you. They can, it's like you never had the child. That child's going into foster care or, you know, being put up for adoption. That's that clear and convincing. This is higher than any of that beyond yeah. the, so like they really work up, you know, the argument about reasonable doubt. And they say, this is the highest standard. It has to be unanimous. You know, it can't just be, uh, you know, on this California, nine out of 12. I mean, you got to get 12 out of 12. And they talked about like Justice Blackstone's theorem. It's better that 10 guilty men go free than one innocent person ever be convicted. So like, 
I mean, you hear about reasonable doubt. I mean, yeah. So on the civil side, you're talking about their burden and preponderance, but it's nothing like the criminal yeah. cases. I mean, they're pounding reasonable doubt into the jurors' minds. Yeah, yeah I think the I, I saw. I remember watching a part of. I think it was the Casey Anthony trial, and the defense lawyer in that case had that chart where he went through each one of those, and I thought he did a really effective job. Obviously, because he he was successful, but um, he you know just of making it sound just like you just did how high beyond a reasonable doubt is and what and what a you know high standard that is and how they hadn't even come close um you know but but, i mean it is a good point how do you i I mean i i i saw part of the way you addressed it in this case which i thought was really effective was you know going through with the jury what does reasonable what does a reasonable Mm -hmm. doubt mean and that you know it's you know that you use reason you use common sense and you can't be speculation um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then you basically use that to talk about, uh, you know, her outlandish story and how, you know, it didn't make any sense and, you know, was, wasn't using common sense. Um, but talk a little bit about how you do approach that higher burden as a, as a prosecutor, because it is, it is a very high burden. Yeah, you really want to appeal to the juror's reason and just focus on that term reasonable. I remember my daughter was just born. So I use an analogy during, um, closing argument you know so i have a dog um i had a daughter and the analogy i gave was look anything is possible right anything you know but if i wake up in the middle of the night and my daughter is in her crib and she is crying and her diaper is wet and the bed is wet or you know her crib is wet like we all know what happened she had an accident she peed in her bed is it possible that my dog jumped into the crib and, yeah. you know, the dog, peed? of course, anything. And the dog jumped back out. Of course, anything is possible, but is that reasonable? This guy, mm-hmm. and it's very different on the civil side. So when I'm a civil plaintiff's attorney, the jury doesn't really like you that much. Right. And if you're a criminal defense attorney, the jury doesn't really, they don't really right. like those people that much. So you really try to say, this guy is trying to fool you and he's trying to make you forget about your reason and ask yourself, is what he is trying to tell you, is this story reasonable? And usually you can kind of get through to them. You just kind of just really explain like how absurd their theory of the case is. Um, and you go from there. That's what I like yeah. to do. So listen, look, it's a high standard, but, just mm-hmm. ask yourself. And, and there's jury instructions, at least here in California, they're fantastic. They say, listen, there's two reasonable stories and you don't know which side you're on. You got to go with the defense theory, right? That's reasonable doubt. But there's a reasonable theory of the case and an unreasonable theory or an interpretation of the evidence. You got to go with the reasonable one. And that's the jury instruction I pound on. Their story, their theory of the evidence in the case is unreasonable. Yeah. Well, and the the, uh, um, the story you gave about your daughter, I you uh, use that to to explain the difference between direct and circumstantial evidence, which oh, I yeah, thought was right. just really it was it was one of the best explanations I had ever seen of um, of, of you know how you mm-hmm. explain those two concepts, you know, and, and you know, like yeah, I didn't see her have an accident. Um, so I don't have direct evidence of that, but you know, her diaper's wet, the bed is wet, you know, she's crying. That's, that's circumstantial evidence. And then, you know, tie that back into, uh, you know, just like you didn't see anybody put, you know, the methamphetamine in the car, but the methamphetamine's in the car, uh, you know, she's in the car, you know, that's all circumstantial evidence. I, and I, mean, I thought it was, uh, very, uh, very effective the way that, uh, that was done. 
think so. It's yeah. hard with intent cases because obviously you can't like, crack open someone's skull and really rarely as a prosecutor, do you have that direct evidence of intent unless people are stupid right. and they are, you know, talking about the crimes they're about to commit or they just committed, you're rarely going to have that evidence. So you kind of want to explain that to the jury as well. Listen, you can't get in someone's brain, but you know what they were thinking, what they intended to do based on their conduct. Yeah, I found that very effective. And Steve, I noted the same thing that you did about, um, you know, asking the jurors to just be reasonable because I, I did go from like in reading, I can't remember if that was open or closed, but I did go reading what Nima said and went from being like, man, beyond a reasonable doubt, that's just rough, you know, to being like, oh, okay, maybe it isn't that bad. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. It, it, it really played into the the theme of, of just use your common sense on and how and 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 that's why the cross of their expert was so good. I mean, it was so quick, you know, but it just made a really important point, which was cartels don't like to use uh, blind mules and they don't use them. They just like to pay people for a transaction, especially when you're talking about this amount of drugs. So what makes more sense? Yeah, and one yeah. thing, you know, criminal cases are harder, but in one way they're easier is you don't have to deal with sentencing, right? So there's some amazing criminal defense attorneys and prosecutors. They're amazing on liability, but the challenge of a civil case is not only do you have to convince a jury to side with you on liability, you got to convince them to give you money. And yeah. the best trial lawyers are the ones that can convince a jury to pay money. But on the criminal side, all you say is, listen, you trust that judge over there. You trust the judge is going to do right, the right thing when it comes to sentencing. Don't worry about the sentence, you know? All you're here, you got to decide guilt or innocence because believe me, if that jury had to impose a sentence, that would be a much, much, much harder case for the prosecution. Yeah. So you kind of right. just say, so listen, just all you got to do is decide guilty or not guilty. Judge Huff will give her a fair and just sentence. You don't have to worry about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. And and you made a great point earlier about how, you know, when you, you know, generally when you walk into a courtroom on the plaintiff side, there's going to be a certain level of distrust and maybe even dislike, you know, because we've been, uh, you know, hit so hard by uh, insurance companies or whoever that'd like to, you know, try and make us uh, out as greedy lawyers or something like that. And that's why, you know, it comes back to this. Um, you know, that we always treat that, you know, credibility, your credibility, your client's credibility is so, so important in every case and how you everything you do has to be building up uh, your credibility and, and holding on to it. Um, because, uh, you know, once you once you have established that with the jury that, you know, that you're credible, that your client's credible and that they're, you know, likable and in a you know bad situation, then, yeah, you know, then you've gotten yourself into a really powerful position for your for your client. Yeah, no question. I mean, you're really starting at a disadvantage. And you're right. It's because all this kind of tort reform and everything these insurance companies are doing when you're a civil plaintiff's attorney. I mean, the jurors just kind of look at you with skepticism. They think it's a money grab and that type of thing. I mean, there are those preconceived notions. Not everyone, but a lot of jurors feel that way. So you you got to really build that um, as opposed to, and the same thing on the criminal defense side, right? Most people think that if you're arrested, guess what? There's a reason you're arrested and you're likely right. guilty. So um, you are really starting at an advantage when you're a prosecutor um, in these types of cases. Yeah. Um, Steve mentioned this earlier, but um, Nima, is it is it typical? Was this part of the judge wanting to move things along or is it pretty typical to keep things as punchy as you did in this trial in terms of the length of opening and close and all that? 
you know, some of it is just federal judges in general. They just keep their cases moving. They're older, they're less patient, you know, um, you know, again, and again, each state is different, right? In California, for instance, we can strike a state court judge, right? So it keeps the judges in check because the parties can get rid of a judge one time that they don't like. So in a federal court, you cannot do that. So mm-hmm. judges are basically subject to appeal. They have free reign to do whatever they want. So mm-hmm. they're older, more set in their ways. They're going to move it along. Um, and so that that's just district judges in general. And mm-hmm. This particular judge just was not having it. I mean, she <laughs> was pushing this case to get done as quickly as possible. You know, on some, you know, as a primarily a state court attorney, right? Most cases are in state court. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I complain about, but I can say the fact that district judges, for instance, they don't grant continuances. Um, they sort of push back. It helps the docket move along faster. I mean, mm-hmm. they hold people to the fire. So the fact that it's a little bit more rigid, um, less sort of loosey goosey in terms of dates and everything, it mm-hmm. really forces parties, could be civil or criminal, to resolve cases faster um, than they would in state court. Yeah, that's such a good point. I always complain about federal court just because I feel like I have to reread the civil rules every single time. And um, but it is true that especially if you've got clients who are anxious for some sort of resolution, I mean, you just tend to get to it faster in federal court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which, you know, sometimes can be good. I mean, you push your case hard and stay in front of those deadlines. I mean, it, you can uh, put the other side, you know, into a um, put them back on their heels and mm-hmm. keep pushing. Yeah, we also got to deal with those OSCs in federal yes, court. You know? right. <laughs> yeah, right. you, you're bluebacks, man, you know. Uh, <laughs> just the yeah. local, local rules, the chamber's rules. Right, that's right, right. that's right, oh. exactly. That's yeah. right, that's right. So I, I, one thing you said there that I had never heard before, in California, you can either party can strike a judge uh, one time. Yes, we have peremptories for judges. It's amazing. So there's judges that basically get peremptoried out of the courthouse because parties will not stipulate to them or they'll strike them. So, excuse me. So it's a real effective check on the judiciary, the state court judiciary here. Um, And they better not mess around because guess what? No one's going to agree to them. They're going to have no caseload. And wow. how, how often does that get done? I mean, do, I mean, because it seems like, and maybe in Los Angeles where you've probably got a, a really uh, big bench, you're not going to keep coming in front of the same judge as much. But in, you know, in Georgia, we, you know, I've, you'll see the same judge, especially in uh, Chatham County where I live. We've got three state court judges, so we see them all the time. Um, so, uh, how how often do people use those those strikes, and do do they ever worry about the fact that you know well their next case might be in front of that judge, and you know? Well, then you, you just use a strike on that next case. <laughs> right. I mean, there's yeah, cases right. where, like the district attorney's office or the you know the public defender's office, they will strike the judge on that case every single time. Every time, like as a matter of practice. And guess what? That judge is not going to be hearing any more cases and it happens to be a private attorney. So it happens a lot. 
I'd say the majority of cases, a party is going to use a strike. Now, sometimes you got to be concerned because just like the jury selection, you got to see, hey, who might be behind you because you mm-hmm. only get that one. And right. sometimes you get a worse judge. But just that fact that there is that peremptory, it really controls the judiciary in a way, the state court judiciary here in a way that federal judges, I mean, they already yeah. think they're gods, you know, and that just, you know, kind of. Yeah. That's so interesting, Steve. All these all these California cases we've talked about. We've never heard about that. No, yeah. No, I I I did not realize that. The you know, the, the other thing I was gonna mention in the uh you know, in this uh um criminal trial was I was amazed at um you cross-examined the uh, defense expert on how much he was being paid and how, you know, maybe the the jury might have thought that was a lot. But I mean, you know, in the civil cases that we have, I mean, ninety five dollars an hour is a bargain. Oh, for exactly. an expert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 A witness won't even, you know, they wouldn't answer right. a phone call, an expert witness. You know? right. yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Until they get that the ten twenty twenty thousand dollar retainer. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah the, the amount of money you see and frankly, I mean, I love being a prosecutor. I mean, what I like to say is, you know, uh, so obviously I've done big firm, I've done prosecution. Now I had my own firm, you know, when I was at the big firm, I was miserable every day, except the twice a month I got paid. Right, prosecutor. Yeah. I loved it every day, except the twice a month I got paid. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah, now I kind of get the best of both worlds, but the right. numbers that you see on the civil side, is just, you can't even compare. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Bonuses at the firm were pretty much my salary at the U.S. Attorney's Office. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <Yeah. laughs> Man. Oh, well, uh, well, Nima, this has just been a, a really good conversation. We really appreciate you coming on. I, I first want to make sure: is there anything else about the uh, USA versus Elena Trejo case that um, you want to make sure our listeners uh, hear about that we haven't talked about? No, that's it. You know, it ended up going up on appeal just to kind of close the loop. You know, between the time the case was tried and the case went up on appeal, the U.S. Sentencing Commission that creates the sentencing guidelines, they adjusted the guidelines. So she was already maxed out in terms of her sentence. They basically reduced the sentence just by two points because they thought the meth and crack cocaine uh, sentences in particular were high. So she ended up getting um, a slightly reduced sentence on appeal because it went up to the ninth and they said, look, this re- reduction is indeed retroactive. So um, mm-hmm. there was a slight adjustment on appeal, but that was it. Case was affirmed. You know, she was in the Bureau of Prisons and I believe she was just released actually very recently. I'll have to double check, but um, I think within the past several months. So <clears throat> that's how the case resolved and uh, that was a fair and just resolution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, let me remind everybody, we've been talking to uh, Nima Ramani. And um, and if you want to look up Nima, you can go to westcoasttriallawyers.com. Uh, Nima, thank you so much for your time. We really, uh, really enjoyed it. Steve, Yvonne, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining. Uh, 
and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.